Welcome to Crosswalk Radio, the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. Take your Bibles and join us today in Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Mitch Pridgen concludes his sermon titled, Paul Called to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Sovereign grace, start to finish, start to finish, Dr. Lawson says. Sovereign grace, start to finish, had brought about the revolution in his life. End of quote. Paul's life's pursuit now centered on the spread of the gospel. Not just, it didn't take him months and weeks and years to develop that pursuit. It was almost like immediately he regains his sight. And what does he immediately begin to do? He immediately goes and begins to preach the gospel. Wow, what a must have changed that must have been to those who knew who he was. What happened to him? Now focused on the spread of the gospel. If he was a man on a mission during his life in Judaism, he was much more now as a slave to Christ. His master in the gospel. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Paul says this. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity. Listen to what he says here. For necessity, it is laid upon me. And then he continues. And I know exactly what he means here. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Out of necessity... It is laid upon me. Woe to me. In other words, most miserable would I be. Most miserable am I if I am not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's one who's called. In fact, I remember when I, when I, when I first met, I was getting ready to go for my ordination. And I remember sitting with the conference superintendent of the denomination which I was first being ordained in in 1983. And I remember sitting with him. And I remember him saying something to me. And at that time, it really concerned me. But it really did. It, it, now it, it rings true, and it has for years. He said, let me just ask you a question, Mitch. Can you do anything else but this? Can you do anything else but this? If you can do nothing else but this, you are called to do this. And I've seen over the years so many that have tried to have one, one hand in the business world and one hand in the pastor of the church. If I try to have one hand in this and one hand in that. And I'm not going to criticize that. Listen, I know I've been bivocational before. I've taught school. I've taught high school while I've been pastoring. I realize that. But I was doing that basically as a tent building, as tent making. Not because where was my passion? My pa- I did enjoy teaching. I was passionate in my teaching. But my greatest fulfillment, my, ma- my greatest joy was when I stood before you on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and other opportunities and preached the gospel. And at the end of verse 1, in our English translation, Paul calls the gospel specifically, notice this, what he calls it, called to be an apostle, set apart, now note this in your Bible, for the gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. He calls the gospel specifically the gospel of God. Do not miss this. Do not miss this. Paul's use of the expression is very important as well as extremely revealing. 
Such an expression reveals at least two things, and I might add some more to it as I move along here, but reveal to us at least two things. Number one, it is the source of the gospel, and number two, the theme of the gospel. The gospel of God gives us the source of the gospel, and then secondly, the theme of the gospel. The gospel Paul preached, listen church, the gospel Paul preached was God's gospel. The contemporary argument commonly called, as I addressed it earlier in my message, the new perspective on Paul and the critics that claim Paul introduced a gospel of his own, which is that really there's scholars out there writing that stuff. That the gospel that Paul wrote about, the gospel that Paul preached, was a completely different gospel than the gospel given to us in the, in the gospels themselves by the Lord Jesus and the other apostles. They claim that Paul introduced a gospel of his own, unlike that which Christ had preached in the Gospels. That argument is ludicrous, 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 and without any merit whatsoever. Having been personally arrested by the Lord Jesus and personally instructed by him, as as, as well, this position is untenable. We need only, in fact, you say, well, what evidence do we have that that really is True. Pastor, let's think about that for a moment. Well, you only have to look at the words of the Apostle Paul himself when he gives a defense for the gospel that he's preaching. And listen to what he does in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, he says, For I would have you know, brothers. Now listen to what he says here. I would have you know, brothers. Because here, let me pause for a moment. Paul's apostolic ministry is under attack. They're undermining his apostolic authority. They're undermining his teaching. And so he's writing in response to this attack on his apostolic authority and on his apostolic teaching. Even at that time. It's not new today. It's been going on since the first century. So he writes to the Galatians here and he says, and this is not one particular church. The letter to the Galatians was a circular letter, which means it was to be read in churches throughout the areas of Asia Minor. But he says this, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Pretty strong statement. For I did not, and listen to what he says here, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. And listen, he tells you the source of his gospel. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So who gave Paul the gospel that he preached? Jesus gave it to him. In fact, as many theologians and Bible scholars believe the time of his disappearance into the deserts of Arabia, he was actually there taught for years by the Lord Jesus himself. Can you imagine that seminary education? And so when he comes out, he's saying to people, that which I'm telling you, I didn't receive from men. No. I receive this by revelation from Jesus Christ himself. So don't think for a moment that the gospel Paul preaches is any different from the gospel that Jesus introduced to us in the gospels. There's no difference. To the apostle Paul, the gospel begins and ends with God. In his small book titled simply The Gospel, which is the part is part of the uh, nine mark series called Building Healthy Churches, Ray Ortland 
gives what he believes to be the essential meaning of the gospel. I'll interject something here. There's another small book out that I'd recommend you buy a dozen of them, keep them in your car, and give them to believers as, unbelievers as witnessing tools. When people are genuinely inquiring about the faith, and you say, explain to them the gospel, and they say, this will help you. But it's simply called the gospel. But Orland writes another book titled the very same thing, the gospel. Listen to what Ortland writes in defining the gospel. God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with the promise of the full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. What a rich definition of the gospel. I like Ortland's definition. I like Greg Gilbert's little book too. And you know why I like Ortland's and like Gilbert's definition? Because it begins and ends with what? God. It begins and ends with God. In it, God is indeed the source. And God and the glory of His grace is its theme. That's what Paul is saying when this is the gospel of God. God is the source of this gospel, and God is the theme of this gospel. As Piper says, God is the gospel. Paul never, never, never abandons these two truths. Yet there's another aspect of Paul's use of the phrase, the gospel of God, that should not be overlooked. In it we glean insight on the Trinitarianism of Paul. As we'll see later, this comes out clearly in verse 3. In verse 4, we see in verse 3 that the gospel of God concerns His Son, Jesus Christ. And in verse 4, we see a reference to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. So the gospel of God is the gospel of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now look at verse 2. You're thinking, oh my goodness. Look at what he says. Which He promised beforehand through His prophets. In the Holy Scriptures. Paul now informs his readers of the fact that the gospel he preaches is not merely the gospel of God, neither is is not only the gospel of God, neither is it a a novelty. It's not something new. Quite the contrary. The gospel of God is that which, as Paul says here, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. People say, well, you know what, that Christian religion, well, that's a new religion. It's only been around about 2,000 years. Really? Well, how do you deal with this scripture? That says, this gospel that we preach, this Savior who we do hold tenaciously to, was the one who was spoken of by the prophets thousands of years before he ever came on the scene. This is the gospel that preceded the others. There is no other gospel. His prophets mentioned here are Old Testament prophets who were writing the message they were receiving directly from God concerning the salvation that was to come. That's the message from Genesis, from the Proteangelion in Genesis 3.15, the first declaration or proclamation of the gospel and the curse upon the serpent to write in, the, in our New Testament. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, 
chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, writes concerning this. Listen to what Peter writes. He says, quote, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but were serving you. So 3,500, 4,000 years ago, they were writing concerning who? Concerning us. This is not a new gospel. This is not some 1,000, 1,500, 2,000-year-old message that we're believing. This is that which has been laid down from the very beginning of time. And then in his second epistle, Peter writes in verse 1, verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These prophets were writing this, not out of their own minds, but what was happening? God the Spirit was moving them. And they, long, they were looking, they were writing these things. I said this during my exposition of Peter. They were writing these things. And as they write, I can only picture them writing these things and stopping. And as, as Peter tells us, asking themselves, what in the world is this I'm writing? Who is this I am writing about? And to whom am I writing to? It is not me, I know that. And I've yet to see this one I'm writing concerning, but I'm writing knowing God is moving me. It must not be for me. It must be for those who are to come. In fact, Peter tells us that even angels themselves longed to look into those things. In other words, the men of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets did not initiate the writing of the Old Testament and the prophecies contained in it that has been rightfully said. Listen in very carefully. The new is in the old contained, and the old is by the new explained. This is, I believe, exactly what Paul has in mind in making this statement. Now look at verses 3 and 4. He says, concerning his son, who was ascended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Paul's. In these two verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul clearly and unequivocally tells us what the gospel is all about. All about. First, Paul says the gospel is concerning his son. Get this, church. The gospel is concerning his son. The gospel cannot be separated. I've got to move quickly for my time. The gospel cannot be separated from its leading figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. Get that? Get that. Remove Christ and there is no gospel. There is no gospel at all. A lot is heralded today as gospel. We have gospel preaching, gospel singing, gospel music, gospel this, gospel that, gospel circuses, gospel fun, gospel this, gospel that. But sadly, much of it has very little, if anything, to do with the true gospel. It may make someone feel good. It may do a lot of things for a person temporally, but what is the foundation of what is being preached or sung or whatever? Not everything that says it is gospel is gospel. A lot that says it is ain't. If what we preach is not concerning Jesus Christ, 
we are not truly preaching the gospel. Listen to that, church. Sadly, much of evangelicalism preaches a Christless message, and I'll not even call it a gospel. Oh, we season it here or there with a little Jesus and a mention of Him in passing, but it's basically what He can do for us. It's almost a genie mentality. The gospel is that which we rub like a lamp, and He poofs out, and we can present our needs, and He's there to meet them. But He's not the centerpiece of our preaching. He's more like an addendum. We must, we must once again return to preaching that exalts Christ from the beginning to the end. He must, He must, church. And I have this in bold print in my cursive notes here. We must once again, He must once again be the centerpiece, the center person of our preaching. He must once again have His place of preeminence in our preaching. Not only our preaching, but everything that we do. Preaching that is Christless, that is not concerning Christ, is not gospel preaching. You want to measure whether you're hearing the gospel? Tune your ear. Tune your ear to how you hear Christ preached. How are you hearing Christ preached? Paul then addresses the humanity, and this is the last, this is as far as I'll be able to get this morning, but then Paul then addresses the humanity. And the deity of Jesus Christ. Did you ever feel like you'd find so much in three verses? He addresses the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Dr. Barnhouse, who was at one time the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church, points out that the Bible, I love what he says here. He says, the Bible is never afraid to mention these two in the same verse. And it's so true. Never is the Bible afraid, never is Paul afraid to mention the two in the same verse, the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Our text clearly states Jesus Christ, quote, descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God. So here you have this dual revelation. He was fully man and at the same time what? Fully God. Over the years... Over the years, men have fallen into some serious error by believing that Jesus was merely a divine man, a man upon whom God allowed divinity to rest during His earthly ministry, for example, at His baptism, or that Jesus was a human God. And you know what? This, is, this would be very appropriate if we could just for a moment go into Rome. The Romans were a very, very eclectic people. They, they would just take everything. They would take all kinds of doctrines and ideas and beliefs and they would kind of blend them all together to fashion their ideas and their understanding of things. And in Rome at that time, there was Caesar worship. Remember, the Caesars believed they were what? They were human gods. And so what Paul is doing here, Paul is going into that culture and much of this church at Rome was Gentile. Probably a large percentage of them were slaves. And he's going in and he's saying, that, that's not the way it is. I want you to understand clearly, I want you to understand clearly his humanity and his divinity, his deity. Both of these, whether you simply see him as a divine man 
or a human God. Both of these are grossly incorrect. Correctly stated, Jesus Christ was and is, and I say is intentionally, is the God-man. In Him, listen, in Him is absolute humanity. In Him is absolute deity. It is not 50% God and 50% man. Not 50% man and 50% God. He is 100% man and 100% God. In Christian theology, this is known by a fancy term called the hypostatic union. It's simply from the Greek word hypostasis. And, and the Greek word only appears four times in the New Testament. Most memorably in Hebrews chapter 1, verses one verses, or verse 3 of Hebrews 1, where Jesus is said to be, and I'm quoting the Hebrew writer, the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of His nature. That word nature there in the Greek is hypostasis. And here the author of Hebrews uses the word hypostasis in reference to the oneness of God, that Jesus and the Father are one. Both the Father and the Son are of the same nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of His speaking of God's nature. How could Jesus say, if you have seen me, what? You have seen the Father. John Piper points out in writing on this subject, quote, in early church discussions, as Greek thinkers tried to find agreeable terms with those who spoke Latin, the word hypostasis came to denote not the sameness in the Godhead, God's one essence, but listen, but the distinctness, the three persons. So it began to be used to refer to something like the English word person. And Piper continues, so hypostatic union may sound fancy in English, but it is pretty simple, a pretty simple term. Hypostatic simply means personal. The hypostatic union is, and listen, so all you need to know, the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. That you have the perfect union of humanity and deity. Jesus has two complete natures. One fully human and one fully divine. At this very moment, this is not just arrest your thought. At this very moment where we are here on this earth, Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. Amen. Not as some ethereal eminence, but as what? As a human person. In fact, the Hebrew writer tells us the man Christ Jesus forever lives to make intercession for us. He there in his 100% humanity is seated at the right hand of God as not only fully man, but also fully God. Making intercession for us. When Jesus ascends, they're all standing there gazing into the heavens. What was it the angel said? Why do you gaze into the heavens? Don't you know? What? A different Jesus than you've seen leave will come again? No. This same, this same Jesus that you have seen, the one you have walked with for 40 days, the one who has cooked you supper on the seashore of Galilee, is the same one you will see. Your eyes, my eyes will meet his eyes. We will see him as he is and wonderfully be just like him. Be just like Him.
Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. He is the human and divine. And they are joined in one person. And that one person is Jesus Christ. I'm going to have to stop. I don't want to. But I'm, going to, I'm looking at my notes going, there ain't no way you're going to eat lunch if I go any further than this. Because I'm going to tell you something. When you, we're going to look at descended from David and declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection, by the power of the Spirit of holiness. What power, I can't think of any better place to go next week than to pick up right here when Paul writes to us, descended from David. And the significance of that statement in regards to what he has already said. I hope this morning that you have seen, that you've learned something. I hope I've shared something with you. That this is just from the very beginning. Can you imagine we've only gotten to three verses? The theological depth and richness of this epistle. and it's just, I mean, all we've just done is we've run a little net across the top of the water and skimmed some of the great truths of Paul. And there's so much more that he's going to give us. And I tell you, I, I look forward to it with great anticipation. Let's stand, please. Father, I am, I am myself overwhelmed as I just consider the thoroughness of the revelation of Your Word. How You would take human instruments like the prophets or like Paul and through them by Your Spirit would convey to us such arresting, life-changing and transforming truths. Father, I do pray that as we continue into our study, that our hearts would grow, our love would grow, our hunger and our thirst for Your truth and for Your Word would grow. But even more, that our relationship and intimacy with You would grow as well. Father, thank You so very much for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. Thank you for the gospel of God. That is the power of God, as Paul will say later in this very chapter, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Might it be so, and it is so, for your glory. In Jesus' name. What a change we have witnessed in the Apostle Paul's life and what a change we have prayerfully seen in our own, that we too are called to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been listening to Crosswalk Radio. This is the Bible teaching radio ministry of Crosswalk Church located in Daytona Beach, Florida. If this sermon has been beneficial to you and you would like to hear more in the Roman series, we would encourage you to visit our website at crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. There you can listen again, download, and even share this sermon and many more in the series. Again, the website is crosswalkdaytonabeach.org. We thank you for tuning in today and please encourage you to tune in next time as we continue to teach 
touch and transform lives by faithfully proclaiming God's Word. 